So I, I rode my bicycle for a year in 2010 uh, from uh, Canada to Colombia, and as part of that journey, I discovered that basically a billion people in the world didn't have uh, access to clean drinking water. So I began this journey and did some higher level education and been on a series of trips with my friends in the last six years. That's all led us to this, to this spot now where we've become very interested in a small scale uh, decentralized desalinization projects. It's really the future of water. Welcome everyone, and I'm stoked that you could be with us for today's Beach Talk. I want to help you understand uh, every word of God that's in the Word of God. Now, God has so many awesome things that He wants to say to us every single day. It's why I do these. It's my hope and prayer that this teaching will be encouraging and will help you understand the Bible better. Now, our objective is simple. Uh, it's disciples making disciples who plant churches that plant churches. We want to do this in a grassroots way that multiplies uh, our efforts. So Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, it said, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples uh, came to him. Now in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us how we're supposed to live. Now it's been said that if you took all of the advice for how to live forever, uh, uttered by a philosopher or a psychiatrist or a counselor, or you took, all, you took out all of the foolishness and boiled it, down, boiled it down to the real essentials, you'd be left with the poor imitation of this great message by Jesus. So the Sermon on the Mount is sometimes thought of as a, a declaration of the kingdom of God. Now, American revolutionaries had the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution. Karl Marx had the Communist Manifesto. Now, with this message, Jesus declared this is what his kingdom is all about. Now, it lays out for the disciple and the potential disciple how regarding Jesus as king translates into their ethics and their daily life. It was the core message, a simple proclamation of how God expects us to live. Now it's clear that the Sermon on the Mount had a significant impact on the early church. Now the early followers of Jesus made constant reference to it and their lives displayed a radically different approach than what we had seen prior. Now the first sermon part, part of the Sermon on the Mount is known as the Beatitudes, which means uh, the blessings, uh, which can be understood as giving us his Beatitudes. This is how we're supposed to be every day in our life. Jesus sets forth both the nature and the aspirations of the citizens of his kingdom and their character traits that they should aspire to. Now these character traits, is, it's not as if we can major in one to the exclusion of the other. They all flow from the same place. Um, there's no escape from our responsibility to desire every one of these spiritual attributes. Now, if you meet someone who claims to follow Jesus, but displays and desires none of these traits, you might rightly wonder about their relationship with Jesus. Because if you don't have the character of a kingdom citizen, then we have to go back and relearn those things. Uh, so Jesus gets into it. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus promised blessing to his disciples. Promising that the poor in spirit are blessed. The idea behind the ancient Greek word for blessed is this word happy, but in the truest, godliest sense of the word, not in our modern sense of merely being comfortably entertained in the moment. 
It's like genuine happiness. It's like my wife, Maria. She's hands down the happiest person that I know. But some of us, this doesn't come intrinsically. So, but it can be a confession uh, that we're sinful and rebellious and without moral virtues uh, and that we need Jesus. Now, the poor in spirit recognize that they have no spiritual assets. They know that they're spiritually bankrupt. We might say that the ancient Greeks had a word for this. They were the working poor and the word for uh, the truly poor. Jesus used the word here for truly poor. It indicates someone who must beg for whatever they have or get. Now, poverty of spirit cannot be uh, induced as like self-hatred. Now, the Holy Spirit in our response to his working in our hearts brings about a joy. Now, those who are poor in spirit uh, are so poor that they don't have to beg. They can be rewarded. They receive the kingdom of heaven because the poverty of spirit is a prerequisite to coming into the kingdom. As long as we hold on to the idea that we have our own spiritual resources, we'll never, we'll never be able to receive what God wants to give us. Now, the call to be poor in spirit is placed first for a reason because it puts the following commands into perspective. These, the future commands won't make sense in light of a humble beginning and our reliance upon God. Now, blessed are those who mourn. Uh, the ancient Greek here indicates an intense degree of mourning. Well, what does that mean? Jesus doesn't speak of uh, sorrow for consequences of our sin, but a deep grief before God about how separated we are from him on our own. The weeping is for the low and needy condition of both the individual and society, but with the awareness that they are low and needy because of sin. Now, those who mourn actually mourn over sin and its effects. For they shall be comforted. Those who mourn over their sin and their sinful condition are promised comfort. Now, God allows this grief into our lives as a path, not as a destination. Now, those who mourn can know that something special is coming from God. Now, the fellowship of the sufferings that we have uh, brings us close to God. The Bible says Jesus was a man of sorrows. He was uh, acquainted with grief. Now, blessed are the meek, it's impossible to translate this word uh, meek with that with just one English word. It has the idea of a proper balance between anger and indifference and a powerful personality properly controlled and one of humility. Now, in, the, in this ancient vocabulary, a meek person was not passive or easily pushed around. The main idea behind the word meek was strength under control, like a strong stallion who was trained to do a job instead of running wild. So it's strength under control. To be meek means to show a willingness to submit under proper authority, a willingness to disregard one's own rights and privileges to get what they want. It's an admission of a reliance upon God. So in verse 6, it says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Now, blessed are those who hunger. This describes a profound hunger that cannot be satisfied by a snack. This is a longing that endures and is never really completely satisfied while we're here on earth, hunger and thirst for righteousness. You see, as followers of Jesus, we hunger for a lot of things sometimes, maybe power, authority, or success, or comfort. But God wants us to hunger for righteousness. Jesus promised to fill the spiritually hungry, to fill them with as much as they could eat. Now, this is a strange filling that both satisfies and keeps us longing for more. It's like the real food. 
Then it says in verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Now when this beatitude addresses those who show mercy, it speaks to those who have already received mercy. It is mercy to be emptied of our pride and brought to poverty of spirit. It is mercy to be brought to mourning over our spiritual condition. It is mercy to receive the grace of God and to become mercy to be made hungry, to hunger and thirst after righteousness. Therefore, one who is expected to show mercy is one who's already received it. Now, the merciful one will show to the weaker one and the poorer one. The merciful one will always look for those who weep and mourn. The merciful one will be forgiving to others and always look to restore broken relationships. The merciful one will be merciful to the character of other people and choose to think the best of them whenever possible or when we don't understand their intentions. <laughs> the merciful one will be compassionate to those who are outwardly sinful or um, don't care about others. Mercy will flow towards them. For they shall obtain mercy. Now, if you want mercy from others, especially God, then we have to show mercy to other people here on earth. Some wonder why God showed such remarkable mercy to David, especially in the terrible ways that he sinned in the Old Testament. One reason was that God gave him so much mercy is because David wasn't merciful to Saul when he could have took his own life. You see, we reap what we sow. That's why we always want to err on the side of mercy. Now, verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Now, in ancient times, this phrase, the pure of heart, had the idea of a straightness and honesty and clarity. Now, there could be two ideas connected to this. One is of an inner purity as opposed to the image of purity. The other is a single, undivided heart. Those who were utterly sincere and not divided in their devotion and commitment to God. The pure of heart receive the most wonderful reward. They shall enjoy greater intimacy with God than they could have ever imagined. The polluting sins of oppression and lust and deception, they blind us. But the one who's pure in heart is free from these pollutions. The heart pure person can see God in nature. The heart pure person can see God in scripture. The heart pure person can see God in the church family. Now ultimately, this intimate relationship with God must become our greatest motivation for purity, greater than the fear of getting caught or a fear of consequences. Now, verse 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Now, this doesn't describe those who live in peace, but those who actually bring about peace, overcoming evil with good. Now, one way, one way we accomplish this is through spreading the gospel because God has entrusted to us the ministry of reconciliation, 2 Corinthians 5. So when we reach out to people and make peace between God and men, people that God have rejected, God blesses us for that. We are in the, we are in the work of being the hands and feet of Jesus to reconcile people to God. Now, this doesn't mean we avoid, we avoid conflict, a peacemaker uh, also sometimes will find themselves in conflict simply because of the way that they live. For they shall be called the sons of God. Now the reward of peacemakers is that they're recognized as true children of God. They share his passion for peace and reconciliation for breaking down walls that exist between people. Uh, now though the peacemaker may be ill-treated by people, 
they're blessed by God. They're blessed because God's hand of favor is upon them. Now, verses 10 and 12 says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For those, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, blessed are those who are persecuted. These blessed ones are persecuted for righteousness' sake and for Jesus' sake, not for their own stupidity or the dumb way they live or their fanaticism. Peter recognized that suffering might come to some Christians for reasons other than their faithfulness to Jesus, like being obnoxious or being weird or being an idiot. The character traits described in the Beatitudes are not valued by our own modern culture. We don't recognize or give awards to the most pure of heart or the most pure and poor in spirit. Our culture doesn't think much about these character traits. They describe the character of the, uh, the citizens of the kingdom of heaven, though, and that's what God's looking for. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and lie about you on account of me. Now, Jesus brings insults and malice into the sphere of persecution. We cannot limit our idea of persecution only to physical opposition or torture. In Matthew 5.10, it says that people can be persecuted and that they're persecuted for the sake of Jesus, for following Jesus, that Jesus expected that righteousness would bring persecution. Now, it didn't take long for these words of Jesus to ring true to his followers. Early Christians heard many enemies say all kinds of evil against them, falsely, by the way. Christians were accused of cannibalism because of gross misrepresentation of the practice of the Lord's Supper. They were accused of immorality because of a gross misrepresentation about their love feasts and their private meetings. They were uh, accused of being fanatics because Jesus warned that there was going to be an apocalyptic ending to the world. They were accused of splitting up families because Jesus said a man shall leave his father and mother. They were accused of treason because they wouldn't honor the Roman gods and participate in emperor worship. They were accused of all sorts of things, just like people can be accused of things today. But we're supposed to leap for joy and rejoice in this because Jesus is taking note when your heart is for him and he's watching and he's keeping an account. Now, now, the world will persecute good people because of the values and the character expressed in these Beatitudes are so opposite to the way people think. Now, our persecution may not be compared to how it was for early Christians, but we still get persecuted nonetheless. Now, look at verse 13. It says, Now you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot, by men. But what does this mean? You are the salt of the earth. Disciples are like salt because they're precious. In Jesus' day, salt was a valued commodity. Roman soldiers were sometimes paid with salt, giving rise to the phrase, worth is salt. You are the salt of the earth. Disciples are like salt because they have a preserving influence. Salt was used to preserve meats and to slow decay. Christians should have a preserving influence on their culture and their community. Now, you are the salt of the earth. The disciples are like salt because they add flavor to everything they touch. Christians should be a flavorful people. 
salt loses its flavor, then it's good for nothing. Salt must keep its saltiness to add any value. When it is no good as salt, it's trampled underfoot. In the same way, too, many followers of Jesus lose their flavor and become basically good for nothing. So, verses 14 through 16, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. When Jesus says you are the light of the world, he gives the, his followers both a great compliment and a great responsibility when he says that you're the light of the world because he claimed that title for himself when he walked on the earth in John 8 and John 9. So we have that uh, responsibility here in the world. These days, everyone wants influence, but they don't want the responsibility. Jesus says, I want you to accept the responsibility of being my salt and my light in this world and that we're supposed to shine and do so lovingly. Now, Jesus never challenged us to become salt or light. He simply said that's what we are. Now, we're either fulfilling or failing when we're given that responsibility. Now, a key thought in both pictures of salt and light is distinction. Salt is needed because the world is rotting and decaying, and if our following Jesus is also rotting and decaying, it won't be any good. Now, light is needed because the world is in darkness, and if our following of Jesus imitates the darkness, we have nothing to show the world or nothing to be the light about. Now, to be effective, we must seek and display this distinctive. We can never affect people around us by becoming like them. Now, let your light shine before men. The purpose of light is to illuminate and expose what is there. Therefore, light must be exposed before it is of any use. If it's hidden under a basket, it's no longer useful. So, the figures of salt and light, they also remind us that our lives are to be marked by the Beatitudes is not to be lived in isolation. We often assume that those inner qualities can be developed or displayed uh, in isolation apart from other followers of Jesus. That's false. All of these character traits are to be lived out in the community of the family of God. Now, a city that is on a hill cannot be hidden. A city as prominent cannot be hidden. If you see such a city from a distance, it's hard to take your eyes off of it. Now, in the same way, Jesus wanted his people, his followers, and his kingdom to live visible lives that attracted attention to the beauty of God working in our hearts and our lives. Now, neither did they put a light, a, a lamp under a basket, but on a lampstand. The idea of a lampstand gives the sense that we are to be intentional about letting our light shine, even as lamps are placed higher so they can light something more effectively. We should look for ways to let our light shine in greater and broader ways. Now, that they may see our good works and glorify your Father in heaven, the purpose in letting our light so shine by doing good works is so that others will glorify God, not us. Jesus is the hero. Now, Jesus pointed to breath and the impact of his disciples that must seem almost ridiculous at that time. How could these humble Galileans salt the earth and light the world? <laughs> but they did. The three pictures together are powerful, speaking of the effect of Jesus' disciples in the world. 
Salt is the opposite of corruption, and it prevents corruption from getting worse. Light gives the gift of guidance to those that have lost their way can, so they can find the path home. And a city is the product of social order and government. It is against chaos and disorder. It provides a family for us to be a part of. Now, the Bible says that we are to be his salt and his light here on earth. Now, verses 17 and 18 says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass till all the law has been fulfilled. Well, what does this mean? Jesus here began a long discussion about the law, which we're actually going to get to in tomorrow's beach talk as well. Today, we're just going to do the first half. What was he talking about? He did not come to destroy the word of God, but to free it from the way the Pharisees and the scribes had wrongly interpreted and applied it. When he says, I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill, Jesus wanted to make it clear that he had authority apart from the law of Moses, but not in contradiction to it. Jesus added nothing to the law except one thing that no man had ever added to the law perfect obedience. This is certainly one way Jesus came to fulfill the law. Even though he often challenged man's interpretations of the law, especially on the Sabbath, Jesus never broke the law of God. Jesus fulfilled the doctrinal teachings of the law and the prophets in that he brought full revelation. Jesus fulfilled prophecy of the law and the prophets in that law. He is the promised one showing the reality of the entire thing. Jesus fulfilled the moral and the legal demands of the law and the prophets and that he fully obeyed them and he reinterpreted them in their truth. Jesus fulfilled the penalty of the law and the prophets for us by his death on the cross, taking the penalty that we all deserved as a result of the law. Now the Apostle Paul wrote in this theme, he says, for Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone who believes, Romans 10. Now, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass away until the whole law is fulfilled. The jot and the tittle were the small marks in Hebrew writing, like a period or a comma. Jesus here told that not only are the ideas of the Word of God important, but also the words themselves, even the letters of the words, are important. This shows us how highly God regards His Word. That's why we're supposed to take it so seriously. This is why I've made it a personal goal of mine to teach the entire Bible because it's not my words that are important in this world it's God's word so as we understand that to a greater degree the greater God can benefit and help us uh, in our lives so some of the differences between these commas and periods were really really small and really really minute and Jesus is trying to drive home the point here that every jot and every tittle Every single word of God in the word of God is important. It's the assurance that Jesus himself fulfilled everything in the Bible. He was perfectly obedient. It's the assurance that Jesus himself fulfilled every part of the law perfectly. Every jot and every tittle. And that he has a plan for you and I in this world to be his salt and to be his light.
Now, this wraps up our time together, looking at the first part of the Sermon on the Mount today in Matthew chapter 5. Tomorrow, we're going to look at the second half of Matthew chapter 5. You know, maybe you've never prayed before. Prayer is just talking to God. Maybe you need to repent. Maybe you need to turn away from some of the things that you've been doing. Maybe you need to quit doing some of the things that you've been doing in your life. We always can come to God and get a fresh start and ask him to help us. All you have to do is say, God, help me to change my ways, to, cha to change my life, to follow you and to choose you in Jesus' name. If you pray that, I believe you're part of God's family. Have a great day. Thank you for your time. We would love to partner with you. Uh, water is a global problem. It's gonna take as many partners as we can to help solve this problem. We'd love for you to partner with us. You can go to our website at www.oceanwater.com. That's O-C-N-W-T-R.com. We love that. Thanks so much.